a young perspective on hot-button issues around the world. This is The Hub. Hello and welcome to the program. I'm Wang Wen in Beijing. A new study by the World Bank says the world may be inching towards a global recession in 2023 as central banks hike interest rates to battle inflation. The ongoing conflict in Ukraine, rising commodity prices, the COVID-19 pandemic going into its fourth year. All this makes the path to sustained economic recovery slippery. Let's begin with this report on protests in Austria, Europe over the high cost of living. Higher salaries, bigger pensions. In Vienna, protesters are demanding solidarity from their employers. Many signs proclaim that while consumers can't pay their bills, energy companies are raking in record profits. And it's really hard for me to afford my apartment with the high gas prices and uh, electricity prices. The basic needs should be like covered from the government. Demonstrations are not only happening here in the capital. All over Austria, people are protesting. Workers' unions have called on people to come out, as well as leaders of the radical far right, who called on their supporters to march too. Police have brought more officers onto the streets in case of possible riots. The Minister of the Interior also expressed his concerns in the run-up to the event. There are currently findings that radical and violent groups from the far right, but also from the far left, may use these gatherings to create division and carry out violent actions. Due to the high energy costs, Austria's government has adopted several aid measures. One example is a $500 payment given to every citizen. But the Austrian Institute of Economic Research would like to see more targeted measures. Austria implemented a very quick lump sum payment uh, to provide very quick help, which was not targeted to poor households. The next is uh, we recently implemented is a subsidy for the electricity bill. This is a little bit better targeted. Over the last month, food prices and housing costs have continued to rise. Overall, however, inflation appears to be stabilizing. We expect that the inflation peak has already been reached or is close to be reached, but for the GDP growth, uh, a recession is quite probably, not only in Austria, but also in the European Union. The possibility of recession continues to hang over the European Union, with the European Central Bank raising interest rates and no end in sight for the war in Ukraine. If the EU does go into recession, then we could expect to see more protests. Johannes Blechberger, CGTN, Vienna. Now, what are the other major challenges facing the world economy and how justified is the sentiment in some quarters of the world that China is not doing enough and putting more burden on the U.S.? Professor Bert Hoffman joins me from Singapore to give us his insights. He's the director of the East Asian Institute at the National University of Singapore, Professor Hoffman, welcome back to the Hub on CGTN. Um, a new study by the World Bank Thursday estimates that global growth will slow down to 0.5% in 2023 and per capita GDP will shrink to 0.4%, which technically means a recession. What are the prospects of the global economy from now until uh, the next year? What are your estimates? 
Well, clearly the world economy is not doing well. Uh, since the beginning of this year, there have been a repeated adjustment of the projections for this year, and the World Bank report sees this as a sign of more troubles ahead. The policymakers in those countries, they face a very difficult situation. On the one hand, they're already quite constrained by the debts that have been run up in the course of the COVID pandemic. And on the other, they're now facing inflation. The U.S. inflation is a bit different from the European inflation. In the U.S., they may have overstimulated the economy a bit, and therefore inflation has, uh, has peaked. In Europe, they face uh, a big hit from commodity prices, particularly energy prices. Uh, the expectation of the World Bank and others is that uh, the monetary authorities will have to respond. The reason is their key interest is to maintain inflationary expectations low. So for that they have to act on policy and interest rates will go up quite rapidly uh, according to the expectations. That in turn will lower economic activity and that may cause, it's not a certainty, but that may cause uh, a global recession next year. One reason for that is that also developing countries will be affected by these monetary policy moves in developed countries, simply because they also have their debt and their debt service, which will go up. But second, if the economies in uh, advanced economies cool, uh, they will also be affected because they can export less to advanced countries. Right, Professor Hoffman, I want to talk about China's economy. A slow, uh, I showed the signs of recovery actually in August. Uh, retail sales rose by some 5.4% year on year, um, boosted by auto and food sales. However, challenges still remain if you look at the real estate sector, if you look at uh, domestic demand, consumer spending uh, is not uh, there yet. Uh, what would be your diagnosis of the Chinese economy? Well, you mentioned some of them. The, uh, the real estate sector in the short term is the key variable as far as I can see. It's hard to determine how big exactly it is in the economy, but at least it's something like 10 to 15 percent. And sales are still down, prices are starting to come down. Stop the bleeding, if you want, is, is now the order of business. And I think the government actions to give more credit to developers to finish the housing is very important. The reason is that that may restore some of the consumer confidence in buying housing in the future, and that may help. Uh, but we have to be realistic that the real estate sector is not going to be as big as it was before. Uh, trends in demographics, in urbanization, uh, point towards a, a lower share in the economy of the real estate sector. So other sources of demand growth would have to, would have to take its place. Uh, the government has unleashed another, uh, some, some infrastructure uh, projects which do help. But again, uh, China now has already a lot of infrastructure, a very high quality infrastructure, so there have to be other engines of growth. Uh, the uh, uh, non-state sector, uh, private sector investment in, in manufacturing, in services, uh, would have to be a big driver of that growth. And that requires good economic policies, requires uh, better expectations for that sector. And of course, these expectations are also affected by uh, the geopolitics resulting from the Ukraine war and uh, still from the COVID, uh, the COVID pandemic, which the government tries to control. So there's a lot on the plate of the government at this point. Yeah, a lot of external shocks uh, potentially to the Chinese economy going forward. I want to bring in a senior research fellow at the Center for China and Globalization, uh, Andy Mock. Uh, Andy, great to have you back to the Hub on CGTN. 
Um, if you look at the numbers of the Chinese economy, it is certainly a mixed bag. Uh, where do you think it is and what are you looking for, especially considering uh, the National Party Congress coming up next month? Well, I think there's two elements to this. One uh, is the uh, global, mostly English language perception of China's economy, uh, which some describe as grim, which I find very odd in that we're looking at positive growth this year and acceleration of growth next year. So uh, certainly it's challenging times, but I think that China's economy certainly has a lot of resilience. We heard about some of the cyclical factors, uh, COVID, the geopolitical challenges, um, the situation in Ukraine. What I'd like to touch on are two structural areas that I think uh, actually give us some cause for optimism. So there's a lot of talk about this demographic crisis in China with an aging uh, workforce. But at the same time, we see China making enormous investments in industrial robotics. And I think uh, this last year, China installed more industrial robots than the rest of the world. So this is one way that China's uh, making the investments, uh, paving the ground for longer-term prosperity. The other issue we've seen is that we're in a world of increasingly global extremes, whether this is geopolitical events or weather events that have uh, caused some of the hydroelectric uh, power challenges in certain parts of China. But again, we see structural solutions being implemented that are partly economic in nature, but partly political in nature as well. So at the recently uh, held uh, Shanghai Cooperation Organization uh, meeting of the country leaders, um, one thing that's very important to point out that President Xi's trip uh, to Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan is about greater regional economic integration, but also his visit to Kazakhstan, I think, underscores uh, the importance of Kazakhstan to China's future energy prosperity, because China is one of the few countries that is very realistic and recognizes the importance of nuclear power. And Kazakhstan as a supplier, I believe they provide something like 40, more than 40 percent uh, of global uranium presents a long-term opportunity for them to not only supply uranium to China, but to move up the value chain by uh, not just taking ore out of the ground, but also adding more processing, more value-added uh, development. So I think um, certainly challenging times, but we also see one of the unique features of China's government is to both articulate and implement long-term strategies. And I see two mm -hmm. of these uh, structural elements as playing a positive role in China's economic uh, recovery and continued uh, prosperity. Right, Andy. Uh, World Bank President David Malpass recently said that China is quote-unquote less eager to really stimulate this time. That may be good for their economy and good for the long run, but that's not really jumping forward. That puts more burden on the U.S. How do you look at David Malpass's um, assessment and sentiment? Well, I think it's certainly understandable. The macroeconomic policy is always striking a balance. And I think China has uh, done a very good job of uh, first taking care of domestic challenges, looking after uh, the interest of its citizens, whether this is from a public health perspective, from other issues of societal stability to economic prosperity. At the same time, I think it's been very clear that uh, China's articulated that uh, as an important 
country that globally that it has a responsibility to contributing to global prosperity. But I think some of the challenges actually emanate from elsewhere. We have to look at provocations by the United States uh, that increase the risk of military conflict, uh, whether the Fed gets this right. Uh, certainly raising interest rates uh, so aggressively can bring some benefits to the American economy, but we can see can be enormously destabilizing for many developing countries around the world. So uh, it really is a complex situation, Wang Guan, and I think um, China certainly is striking a balance uh, between domestic economic considerations and being not only a responsible stakeholder, but increasingly a provider of global public goods. Yeah. Uh, Professor Hoffman, let's talk about Europe, where you come from. Eurozone inflation hits 9.1% in August. That is highest uh, in the past 20 or so years, uh, with high energy prices a key reason. And there are predictions of industrial shutdowns, and the IMF has downgraded uh, growth forecasts for Eurozone's big four economies, uh, namely Germany, France, Italy, and Spain. Um, what will be the scenario when winter comes and gas de demand is high again? Um, will there be a European economic crisis? Well, I don't believe that. There, there is a, a, a clearly a very big challenge, but also at the same time the governments there do try to find some solution, finding alternative sources of energy. In the short term, there is not much they can do except for more oil and more um, coal. Also looking again at nuclear, even Germany that stepped out of nuclear a, a number of years ago. Uh, but there's also talk about capping energy prices for users, especially for industrial users who might be uh, excessively affected. Uh, and, and then in the medium term, there of course there will be alternative sources, uh, big investments in renewables, uh, new sources for LNG uh, deliverables. So, but the, the the coming winter is not going to be is not going to be easy for Europe. That is that is clear. Uh, on top of that, it's not just energy. Gradually, you see. Of course, in reaction to inflation, you see wages creeping up, and therefore the the European Central Bank, which has been very reluctant to use uh, interest rates instruments, has now started to move on the interest front as well, and we're probably going to expect more. So it's not going to be an easy year for, for Europe. Mm -hmm. We've heard from the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, who recently blamed Europe's growing energy policies for its energy crisis. Um, he also blames Germany's withdrawal from the Nord Stream 2 pipeline project uh, that would have transported Russian gas to Germany. Uh, do you think Europe might rethink these measures? No, no they won't, because they would see uh, that as financing Russia's war in the Ukraine. So they, this is a political decision, it's a tough decision, and with lots of consequences, but, uh, but uh, the Europeans are quite uni unified on that point. All right. Andy, where do you see Europe's relations with China heading uh, now that we have reports about Germany saying it will try to reduce its dependence on China? Is that another decoupling bid? Um, I mean, in the UK, the new prime minister, uh, Liz Truss, also promised on her campaign trail to get tough on China. Well, I think certainly the rhetoric has not been very positive, Wang Guan. But I'm actually uh, a little more, I would say, pessimistic about the situation in Europe today. Um, if we look at the really only practical way for Europe to get through uh, the winter from an energy perspective is euphemistically called demand destruction, meaning that uh, major businesses, whether these are glass businesses, uh, iron, steel, zinc, aluminum, have to shut down. 
And I think this gives us uh, some insight into uh, how Europe will uh, deal with China as well. I'm a little bit less sure that uh, Europe will continue this uh, folly of uh, opposing Russia. You know, this notion of indivisible security lies at the root of this, um, but we're seeing the economic implications. Similarly, I think with China as well, we see the importance of the China market to many German businesses, many European businesses. Uh, but we also see now China becoming an increasingly vital supplier of many, many important products. Look at electric vehicles, batteries, these industries of the future, that if Europe truly wants a sustainable future of economic prosperity, I think they really do have to, they have to resolve this contradictory stance between the rhetoric and the economic and even political realities. Well, Professor Hoffman, how do you look at this with changes of cabinets uh, in many countries in Europe or potentially in many more countries of Europe? Where is Europe's relations with China headed? Well, that uh, to me is still a, an open question and I, and I share the concern uh, of Mr. Mark that, that it, it would be quite destructive if there were to be, if you want a decoupling from China. I think it takes many sides to, to move on that agenda, but as it currently stands, a lot of the directions are in that direction of decoupling, simply to reduce the risk of potentially any future conflict that might occur, uh, so that you're not that as vulnerable as Europe is now to Russian energy. Uh, I believe that is to some extent an emotional response, and I think there's better ways of handling this, but it does require a lot of policies coming together. The international relations need to be put on a different level. The, if you want, the anti-China rhetoric would need to disappear to a large extent, and that will take some time. And I hope that in the meantime, we won't uh, see any crisis coming from that. You know, when, when I cover the IMF and World Bank m annual meetings, uh, geopolitical factors are always considered major factors, increasingly so, uh, impacting the global economy. And some Chinese colonels, uh, military strategists I've talked to, said there will be two Cold Wars going forward, like it or not. Uh, one with, um, you know, the Russia's military actions in Ukraine, uh, when it finishes, uh, if and when it finishes, there could be a, a Cold War in Europe. And there's another Trans-Pacific Cold War between Beijing and Washington. What would that mean for the global economy? Andy, let me start with you. We hear this term decoupling quite a lot. But um, there also, I think, is an argument that what we're witnessing is recoupling. So look at 2022, this year so far, it's been full of negative news about Ukraine, uh, the ongoing COVID crisis. And I think what is overlooked is that this year also marks the formal launch of RCEP, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, that covers about a third of the world's population, currently about a third of global GDP that's projected to grow to 50% global GDP. And even if it's only the first year of what's expected to be a many-year process, uh, countries are seeing economic gains from this. Uh, Durian is, is one example, but there are others uh, as well. We also look at the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which is economic, political, and military, uh, and with Iran uh, joining, that we're witnessing, I think, the emergence of new 
globalization drivers, as well as a recalibration of what traditionally has been thought of as globalization, which historically has been transatlantic, but then also to include China, but centered on the U.S. And I think what we're seeing is the emergence of new poles, and of course some people call this multipolarity, uh, but that we're seeing re-globalization, and it's presenting crises, challenges, but also enormous new opportunities as well. Professor Hoffman, do you agree there's going to be re-globalization of sorts? I definitely think that regional integration is going to be a theme going forward. And, and as I said, the RCEP is one driver. Europe is already very strongly uh, integrated. And maybe the transatlantic integration will go deeper. But it will be costly. China is a big source of uh, final production, but also intermediate goods increasingly for the rest of the world. The interaction with the advanced world or with the, the U.S. Europe is much, much deeper than the, the Soviet Union ever was or Russia still is. Uh, so it would be very costly to, to unwind that and to sort of lock up economic activity in regional blocks. It, it does require a different way of thinking on all sides, I would say. And I do believe that, that there are still uh, lots of opportunities there. And diplomacy uh, should now be in charge because there is this, we all live in this world together. There's lots of global issues to solve and uh, they can't be solved with uh, Europe, uh, the U.S., and China not moving in the same direction. So I remain hopeful that there are opportunities to discuss on how a, a more multipolar world, the U.S. doesn't like the term, but a more multipolar world with different centers of, mm -hmm. of, of power, how that could look like and how that could function in a cooperative manner. Fair enough. Uh, I want to bring in Edgar Perez, global technology and finance expert in Beijing. Edgar, welcome to the Hub on CGTN. I want to have you your take on the CHIPS and Science Act that U.S. President Joe Biden recently signed. Um, what does the act say? What impact will it have both on the U.S. chip industry and China's semiconductor industry? The CHIPS and Science Act signed by President Biden last month, it is indeed an important effort in the goal of the country to actually secure supply lines for semiconductors. In the last three years, we know how difficult it has been to provide these semiconductors to the final customers. That law includes three parts. The first part is actually very relevant because it involves $52 billion in facilities and financing that will be provided to companies creating building factories of semiconductors in the continental United States. The second part includes $180 billion, which will be devoted to promote science and technology through three different departments. The Department of Commerce National Institute of Standards and Technology, the National Science Foundation, and the Department of Energy's Office of Science. So this is an important bet on potentially improving the technology infrastructure in the United States, and potentially, of course, looking at the future, what the new technologies in the future will come beyond semiconductors today. Do you see it as another effort by Washington to somehow um, decouple with China and uh, to contain China technologically? One thing that is important to understand is no matter how many incentives or laws are regulated by different countries, at the end of the day, what companies would like to be is close to their customers. So when you think about logistic trades and routes, for example, at the moment, we want to be close to our customers. We want to be able to secure this provision of supplies whenever there's any type of incident like COVID-19 in the last years. So I think that's gonna be the main driver 
he remembered in the last decades, offshoring was a trend. And that, of course, went all the way to offshoring the production of semiconductors to Asia and different markets there. That being said, if the cost there changes, there's going to be another trend in the opposite direction. Nothing guarantees that we won't be back to again offshoring trends in the next decades too, based on the requirements of the demand, which is the ultimate king in this industry. Well, Andy, let me turn to you. The Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, uh, based in the Taiwan region, is the world's largest chip maker. The U.S. is uh, seeking support and continued cooperation with the Taiwan region. Um, this comes after the TSMC announced they will invest over $12 billion to build a chip factory in the United States. Um, how do you look at this triangular relationship between Taipei, Beijing, and Washington? Uh, well, this is clearly centered on semiconductors, uh, which are the foundation for technological superiority in the digital age. And we know that a crucial part of the United States national security strategy is to maintain uh, its technological leadership over any other countries, and in particular China. So this is, I think, well known. But I think the challenge for the U.S. is this. Um, through the CHIP4 uh, alliance they're trying to create. It's understandable what they want to do, but the realities uh, may confound them. Um, you know, when you talk to the CHIP leaders, not just TSMC, but Samsung, uh, some of the Japanese companies as well, they're not that interested in working with each other because they see themselves as ferocious competitors. To use an American example, it's like asking Coke and Pepsi to work together for the interest of a third party. So I think we really have to see here. The other thing, too, is that even as recently as uh, you know, a few weeks ago, uh, the South Koreans now are feeling quite disillusioned that they've made very good faith efforts to make investments in the United States, only to feel betrayed or backstabbed by them with this uh, mm -hmm. new Inflation Reduction Act that hurts Hyundai, which is the number two EV uh, supplier in the United States, that right. uh, Taiwan, uh, TSMC, may experience something similar. So I think everyone is very, very careful about moving forward with these types of initiatives. And again, I see a, a big disconnect here. And one of the most important factors uh, in these types of uh, endeavors that require such complex coordination is the trustworthiness and the reliability of government. And it's not entirely clear uh, that this is something that the U.S. can deliver. All right, Professor Hoffman in Singapore, Andy and Edgar in Beijing, thank you all so very much. And that's all the time we have for this edition of The Hub on CGTN. Thank you for joining us. I'm Wen in Beijing. Our news coverage continues on CGTN. Bye and take care.